0: So, um, so to introduce myself, for anyone that you know didn't know me that was listening, my name is Jayla, and I'm one of the ID pharmacists at the VA. So um, I wanted to give this presentation that I'm calling social stewardship, that was something I came away with from ID Week. After um, going this past year, you know, I went to the pre-meeting workshop for best practices in stewardship. And as well as some of the pro con debates and other ses- sessions on stewardship, I really came away with this theme of having a sociological or social behavioral approach to stewardship. And I was just really mesmerized by it. Um, you know, whether that's because I um, have a liberal arts background before pharmacy school, but I just found the concepts so interesting. Um, they're, you know, at, at surface value, very intuitive concepts and very commonsensical. But I think they tend to be less tangible to us as, you know, maybe scientists or in the medical profession. So um, really over the last two ID week conferences in 2017 and 2016, there was a PhD, Dr. Julia Zimzak, who came and presented her research um, that she's done over the years in sociology on um, the social determinants of antibiotic prescribing. So I wanted to use this presentation to kind of condense a lot of those messages from ID Week and see you know, what we can apply here and what we can use in stewardship. So I would say that my disclosures are, I do not have a PhD and I am not an expert in this. So this is gonna be my novice attempt at translating some of this information from ID Week. Uh, I also say that I'm an INTJ. So for those of you who have taken Myers-Briggs personality tests, Um, An INTJ is definitely more on the like thinking and rational side of things, so that probably makes me even less qualified to give a presentation on sociology. I I suspect many of us in infectious disease are INTJs, but I can only speak for myself. Exactly. So as an INTJ, we're down here in the Sith Lord category, where we would want to be if we were taking a sociology approach is probably more in the Jedi Master standpoint. So those who have maybe the F, like the feeling um, aspect to their personality assessment are probably more qualified to give this presentation than I am. So we want to aspire to be JEDI masters when we approach stewardship. (laughs) So really I call it social stewardship um, because it was a quick title or short title I could put on the schedule, but the full title is the social determinants of antibiotic prescribing. So um, how can we think of change behavior and social theory when it comes to um, changing the way people think about antibiotics, you know, that takes into account the culture of your institution, your healthcare organization, the relationships between physicians and providers, um, as well as just cultural beliefs that people have about infectious disease so it's getting you know i feel like it's getting harder and harder to keep up with stewardship literature these days there just seem to be new publications in every different um, medical journal that at least i follow and so while social behavioral theory is not new it's not a new concept um, certainly not even within medicine I found it really interesting that even across the last three months, I came across um, three different articles in three different journals that somehow related to social theory. I I wanted to draw your attention to the one that was published in New England um, back in February, and it was just a perspective piece. So it's really short. I would highly encourage you to read it if you um, haven't already. But um, it actually has nothing to do with antibiotics. It was just about the psychology of clinical decision making. But I felt like it really set the stage um, for this presentation. So um, the author starts out by talking about some of the recent Nobel laureates in um, physics and economics and what we can learn from them in medicine. And he sets this idea that medicine is really a hybrid between science and social science. And if we can sort of better appreciate what goes into decision making, he kind of calls it like the wrinkles and twists of decision making. If we can better appreciate that, we can improve patient care. And so the idea is that when we are at the bedside, we tend to think that we're very rational actors. We persist in this idea that if we have all the information, We've, you know, done a comprehensive data collection, we've taken everything into consideration, you know, assimilated it, synthesized it, that we're going to make the best decision or the optimal decision. But actually, we are disproportionately influenced by other things. So we're more influenced by um, information that's very salient and easily digestible and readily in front of us. And he says that's one of the reasons why um, pharmacy, Um, Companies or pharmacy rep presentations are so influential because they have very simple messages and they're probably feeding you when they're giving you these messages. Um, But in addition to that, we're moved more by the harms and losses that we've experienced more than like benefits and gains of treatments that we've seen. We also suffer from last case bias. So our beliefs are very influenced by recent experiences more than remote experiences and that we tend to overestimate very small possibilities of things happening like a rare adverse drug reaction more than um, a beneficial like, larger gain. And so it was just really interesting that he just you know, really clearly lays out this dichotomy where we work in medicine, we are, come from this background of evidence-based medicine so we think we're very rational when we approach things but in fact we're not. And so uh, this was really echoed in every paper that I read preparing for this. Um, and so I thought it was a good, a good way to um, set up information. So I would encourage checking out that perspective piece. So what I want to do is define what it means to take a sociological approach to antibiotic prescribing as well as stewardship. What are the social determinants of prescribing and how can we use this knowledge to inform stewardship? Um, If we know that, what are the everyday barriers that we face when we try to interact um, with other um, colleagues for stewardship? And then look at some of the successful strategies that have already been used and published on change behavior with regards to stewardship. So um, everybody in this audience uh, knows what stewardship is and what our goal is. We know that statistics say up to 50% of antibiotics Um, are either unnecessary or inappropriate. So that's sort of what we're up against. So what, what I would argue is that it's one thing to just operate a stewardship program and it's another thing to have a successful stewardship program. And so to sort of drive beyond operation and how can we be more successful, I think we really have to step back and look at what are the facilitators and barriers of appropriate prescribing. And then I always like to remind people, um, or just to appreciate what it means to prescribe an antibiotic um, and that they're really the only drug that you could ever give to one patient where it it could impact the effectiveness in another. All right, so winter is already here, actually. So the Joint Commission Standard for Stewardship has been out for over a year And so hospitals across the country have already started to be surveyed against the standard. And so the Joint Commission is only gonna expect more and more from us in terms of what our stewardship program is doing. But in terms of, you know, what gives us regulatory structure to our program, this is the standard if you are not familiar with it. Um, Good news is they already got rid of three at this point. So I think it'll come back But I think they realize that um, trying to educate patients and families during an acute admission is more difficult um, to do than maybe programs are ready for. So what I want to argue about the standard and how it impacts what I want to talk about today is that educating staff and practitioners is a good intention, but literature tells us that it's not sustaining. When we do educational efforts, they usually don't have large sweeping impacts and they're just not sustaining over time and that using Multidisciplinary protocols policies and procedures also (coughs) is a good thing and people want to make order sets and have policies But we also know that people game the system. They work around IT they can override policy and so what I would say is that to take a sociological approach to stewardship really hits right here at the top so making Stewardship and organizational priority from um, the top down in their leadership When we do that we sort of internalize a new norm about the way that we approach antibiotics And I would argue that if we make it an organizational priority that that is what can have um, wide sweeping changes So why think of stewardship as a sociological endeavor? so one of the things that dr. Zimzak did was present some of her research on interviews with different physicians. So this is um, an excerpt from an ID physician. So this was their perspective on why we should have a sociological approach. So, you know, our hospital leaders are always looking for an IT fix. You know, let's have a pop-up box or let's make it so the patient can't be transferred out of the unit until there's a stop date for the antibiotic. They're looking for this foolproof technological system. And that's important, but we really need to start focusing more on how we communicate this information, which is really not something we're trained to do or know much about. Um, Stewardship has suffered from really heavy-handed mannerisms, like here come the antibiotic police. So we need to change that perception. We need to become great ambassadors. We just can't be nagging people, having clicking boxes and forcing pop-up boxes. We want to be able to empower and engage prescribers. So it's not about nagging it's about good news giving you great skills making your life easier empowering you so we as physicians need guidance on how to engage and convince better to change behavior so that's the why of why we need to have um, a sociological approach so when it comes to behavior change um, this was a recent systematic review that looked at um, a bunch of different stewardship studies that have been published and tried to categorize the different um, interventions that we have, whether that's education, audit and feedback, having restricted formularies and prior approval. And so what we found is that audit and feedback is really the most common um, way that stewardship programs attempt to make interventions. And that's what we try to do here on a daily basis, reviewing Theradoc alerts, is we're auditing and then we're giving you feedback. So again, this persists on the idea that people are rational actors. So if we give someone enough information, we would hope that they would use that and make optimal choices. So for example, we could give someone five references on why it would be a good idea to consult ID in staph bacteremia because it improves mortality and so forth. And so it would be a very rational decision for someone to take that recommendation and consult ID. But we know there are times that they don't, right, that we don't, it doesn't matter what information we give them. They might have other um, reasons why they would choose not to take that recommendation. And so the conclusion really is that prescribing behavior is a complex multifactorial process. So how complex is it? so this is a visual for visual learners of um, of that framework so if you as a physician have a knowledge of id you know antibiotics and you know the patient so you're ready to make a decision about using antibiotics or you've decided that this patient needs antibiotics so if we look at at your perspective what are all the things that influence that decision so again the healthcare system social interactions and cultural beliefs well what if we wanted to take the patient into account and know you know, what they care about antibiotics and what their perspective is. So if you get past all that, then you're ready to choose an antibiotic. Well, you have a plethora of availability of choices. There's not even the pharmacist role on here. So do I even influence your decision making? Um, so maybe that's where that comes into play. But so this is just a visual on, um, you know, the different influencers that go into <coughs> prescribing behavior. So um, that sort of brings me back to um, Dr. Zimzak and where her um, research has really focused on sort of coming up with a list of social determinants of prescribing. And this idea that there are factors that drive our prescribing beyond just clinical knowledge um, or even medical need at the time. And so there's a lot of um, data beyond just antibiotics, but this idea that prescribing a drug is, much, is very much a social act, just as much as it is um, a clinical knowledge act. So these are the five social determinants that I want to talk about. Relationships between clinicians, patient demand, this um, idea of risk, fear, anxiety, and emotion when it comes to antibiotic prescribing. Um, perception or misperception of uh, the problem that we're facing with resistance as well as um, environmental um, pressures that we all practice in. So relationships between clinicians, she sort of groups between the idea of prescribing etiquette, the role of hierarchy, and the opinions of senior colleagues. And so with prescribing etiquette, this really has to do with a a physician's individual autonomy with decision-making, and that within medicine, or probably most areas, there's this um, strong cultural, historic norm of non-interference. There's just not this precedent really of uh, peer-to-peer feedback on prescribing. And so I think when you know, stewardship first starts out, you know, we're calling you out of the blue or putting a note in your chart on someone that you did not ask for our opinion. Um, and so that's this idea of, of overcoming you know, prescribing etiquette and norm of, of non-interference. <coughs> Role of hierarchy is um, very important when it comes to relationships, and so we know that junior physicians defer to their attendings. We know that when we call people, we call the intern or we call the resident. More often than not, we hear, "Well, my attending wanted it." And so, with stewardship, we um, tend to focus our efforts on the on the junior clinicians while ignoring the relationships of, you know, their seniors. And so. Um, You know, that's just something for us to think about if we are, you know, making new policies or trying new things, we really want to make sure that we have the buy-in from the attending level or the, you know, service chief level. And one of the interesting things with all this research, is, you know, very qualitative research, and so there's always a lot of um, interviews that take place, and so they all have these really great quotes. And so there's one quote from a resident that kind of captures this idea of hierarchy, um, as well as the opinion of senior colleagues. And he said that, you know, whatever attending you're working with is who you learn from. And so if I see them um, constantly not prescribing antibiotics over and over again, then I would feel comfortable not doing it. But if they're always doing it, then I feel the need to do it. And so I think, you know, we would all appreciate that we learn from, our mentors. And so if we want to change the way people approach antibiotics, we really should start from the top, you know, top down from that. So patient demand. Um, A lot of the literature about patient demand with antibiotics comes from, you know, ER settings, Amcare settings, and and even pediatric settings. Um, I think, you know, I can probably relate to this for our patient population. We can all maybe remember an SCI patient um, or SCI patient's family member who brought them in and was just convinced that their family member had a UTI um, Just because you know their urine has a different color. It has a different smell. And so they were demanding antibiotics so patient demand is real and um, You know physicians might say that it just takes too long to explain that antibiotics are unnecessary so if you have um you know, someone in your office who has a viral respiratory infection, and and you know they do, but they're sitting there in front of you, demanding an antibiotic, you know, it's just hard to make time to really go through why they don't need it. There's also some um, suggestion that clinicians may be overestimating this patient demand. They sort of always fall back on that excuse, but patients are getting smarter. Um, The CDC does really amazing campaigns to reach out to the public. Um, to educate them on this problem of antibiotic resistance. Um, and so there's probably a middle ground here where we can't just blame the patient all the time for demanding antibiotics. So, again, there were some nice quotes from ER physicians and ER attendings this time on their perspective of patient demand. And, you know, one who's been practicing for 11 years kind of said that we as physicians have created an expectation in the population. You know, they come in asking for antibiotics because the last three times they came in, they were told that they needed an antibiotic. So when they show up for the fourth time and say, I'm here for my antibiotic, we think that they're crazy. But in reality, we train them to come back and ask for an antibiotic. Um, And the other physician actually likened antibiotic demand to opiates, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so this idea that you know, they're probably very beaten down by patients coming into the ER for pain medication, they kind of felt the same way with antibiotics. So the physician is just so beaten down, you know, they don't wanna argue anymore with the, the patient. As much as they wanna be the person to have that hard um, discussion and educate the patient, sometimes it's just really hard to do that. So moving on to the next social determinant of risk, fear, anxiety, and emotion. This is um, probably my favorite social determinant because it's just so, just so interesting that we sort of have anxiety and fear um, with approaching infections and letting that drive when we prescribe them. And so this has to do with the perception that the risk of under treating a patient will always outweigh an individual patient's risk from receiving unnecessary antibiotics. So um, some of the things that play into that is that adverse effects really have a limited impact on decision-making. So a physician would be willing to risk giving a patient C diff over just missing an infection. Um, Broad spectrum antibiotics feel safe. So people sort of belabor under this thought that they feel safe, whether or not they are is, is different. That doesn't matter. They feel safe. Um, The overarching goal is just to prevent disaster in the next 24 hours. So when you're admitting someone, you're on call, you're just trying to mentally get through the day. Um, And so it's just easier to put someone on antibiotics than than to think about it or risk missing something. And so really there's just emotional desire to provide everything to an individual patient um, without really kind of considering wider population consequences. So, um, one of the things I I wrote down from ID Week was a perspective that you're not haunted by the cases where you did too much. You're haunted by the cases where you maybe didn't do enough and missed something. And so that's, I think, within the back of um, the mind of everybody and kind of goes back to that. We're influenced by our harms and losses more than we are by the cases that, you know, the patient did well. One of the suggestions I've seen on how to counter the fear of prescribing antibiotics is using peer comparison data, Um, you know, and it can be de identified at the provider level. But if you're able to show in your hospital top performers, so people who don't over prescribe antibiotics, and if you're able to show that they have just as good clinical outcomes, As people who over-prescribe antibiotics, that that can give some of those people who are driven by fear maybe more confidence that maybe I don't need to use antibiotics in every case because you know physician X doesn't use as much as I do, and you know, they have just as good um, outcomes. So it's, you know, it's that's not easy to kind of put that sort of data together, but it's something that can um, get at this point. So um, some quotes, and these are more from residents. And it just really captures what I think we all know, that there are instances, you know, where I erred on the side of caution and gave an antibiotic. If I was really anxious and thinking about that if I just give them the antibiotic, I'm playing it safe and covering. And in those instances, it was probably driven by fear. So when you're turning over a patient to, you know, another colleague coming on for the evening or the weekend, you don't want to make it seem like you were under treating the patient or you didn't recognize someone who was more ill when it's three in the morning or three in the afternoon, depending on how busy you are, the easiest solution is just to throw vancomycin at the patient, at every patient, because you really don't have time to read all the guidelines that tell you 16 different things. And I think there's more pressure towards, you're gonna look bad if you miss something and did not treat it pr- appropriately, versus giving C. diff or diarrhea, which is a little bit more anonymous. I thought that was really, interesting, quite honest, um, and it's true. You know, you're not necessarily the physician that sees that patient when they're on their fourth and fifth recurrence of C. diff. And so it is kind of anonymous at that point um, who the initial um, culprit was for antibiotic prescribing. So perception or misperception of the problem, and the problem is antibiotic overuse and resistance. And so what they do when they send out this survey research is they usually start out by asking the physician, do you think antibiotics are overused? Yes. Do you think that resistance is a problem? Yes. Do you overuse antibiotics? No, definitely not. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this is getting at, that survey research finds that clinicians agree that antibiotic overuse is a problem generally but not locally. So this idea of it's not me, it's others. Um, also, that you know, if you're a physician who has never seen a pan-resistant culture, um, you know, resistance then becomes more of a theoretical issue than it does something practical for you. You know, if you have someone who has a pan-susceptible culture, and we're telling you, well. Don't use that antibiotic because it's going to have you know further complications for other people down the line. You know that's not really practical to them because it says, yes, it's susceptible. And so it's getting people to think, um, you know beyond local and, and sort of accept those wider population um, consequences. And along with this is the idea of exceptionalism. So when guidelines don't apply to my patients, my patients are special, um, they weren't represented in those studies. Um, when people use experience to, to trump guidelines, um, that's what comes into play here. And so, in order to overcome this, we really have to um, try to make it more local to an individual physician and make it more relevant and tangible for them. And so, finally, contextual and environmental pressures. So, some of this was <laughs> echoed in some of the other um, ideas as well, but time pressures you know, maybe in other places, not so much the at the VA, but we have this pressure to discharge quickly. So that doesn't encourage, uh, let's wait for the cultures to return and de-escalate. You know, if we have to get them out of the hospital, it's gonna be maybe on an empiric regimen. Um, we have competing priorities. So if a physician is really only cares about patient satisfaction scores, because that relates more to them in job performance, then they're gonna be influenced by patient demand more than me trying to talk to them about um, antibiotic resistance. And time of day and decision fatigue is also really interesting. And so I wanted to show you um, this study that comes from um, um, Ancare. And so what they did is they looked at antibiotic prescribing in upper and acute respiratory tract infections. And so they grouped um, different infections into antibiotics that are sometimes indicated versus never indicated. So never indicated was things like acute bronchitis, flu, maybe non-strep pharyngitis, um, versus sometimes indicated was more like otitis media, maybe sinusitis, um, pneumonia, and strep pharyngitis. And so it was really interesting. They looked at the time of day as well as the percent of antibiotic prescribing. So even if we look at the bottom line on this chart, which is the class where antibiotics were never indicated. So even at eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning, when you're sharp and ready to go and have these conversations with patient, um, your antibiotic prescribing, 25% of the time, you're still giving antibiotics to people who didn't need them. But as as the day went on, 10 a.m., 11 a.m., got closer to lunch, you're just like, whatever. And so your antibiotic, prescribing increased in those patients who um, never had an indication and um, Kind of reset after lunch, but then it still kind of increased. and so this is you know, it's just really interesting you just have to sort of internalize it and recognize it um, and be more you know cognitively aware um, that, that this could happen in your practice so the implications for stewardship of these social determinants is that you know our interventions have been successful to a degree, but you know we could do better. We know that direct educational approaches generally don't result in sustained improvement. Restrictive policies really can be circumvented, so stealth dosing, waiting for the ID team to go home at 5 o'clock and then putting in your orders for DAPTO or whatever you want, your carbapenem. Um, Misrepresenting clinical information. So when, um, you know, physicians are being dinged because they're over-prescribing antibiotics for bronchitis, they they stop using the word bronchitis when they write their notes. So they try to outsmart the coders and the people who go back and pull those um, text words. Uh, This happens, sounds terrible. Um, and then combining non-restricted antibiotics to get desired coverage beyond what stewardship was recommending. So stewardship wants you to maybe deescalate, narrow your coverage or do something else, but they're gonna use some um, smart combination of of other antibiotics to still um, get what they want. So for sustainable change, we want clinicians to internalize new social norms. So antibiotics have this image problem. So we talked about broad-spectrum antibiotics feeling safe, adverse effects being underappreciated. So that's the image problem of antibiotics. We also want um, people to be more open to questioning or being questioned about prescribing decisions, um, encouraging peer-to-peer comparison and feedback. And so if social factors can be considered in design and implementation of stewardship, you know, we could have more research and more um, maybe tangible things to implement. So what have we talked about so far? So we talked about what it means to take a sociological approach to prescribing and we kind of went through some of those social determinants. So what are the everyday barriers that we face? So that's kind of what goes, we talked about what goes into influencing prescribing. So then what are we up against when we try to have these um, conversations with others? So some of the everyday barriers in stewardship, and a lot of this information also comes from um, some of the talks that Dr. Septimus did at um, ID Week as well. And so he talks about the misalignment of incentives. So we have different performance measures. We're trying to meet joint commission, OIG, CDC, whoever can give us performance measures. Well, surgeons have different performance measures, um, right? And the ICU might as well. And so we're speaking sort of different languages or our goals are, are have different um, alignment. There's a lack of definition of appropriate when it comes to antibiotics. So when you look at these different studies who've tried to um, put a, a, a definition or criteria on appropriate, they vary from study to study and so who am I to go into someone's chart and use words like appropriate and inappropriate to describe um, their prescribing and make recommendations when there's really not a standard definition of that Um, guidelines maybe and then the lack of a standardized risk adjusted measure so you know that's really our barrier in stewardship and id Um, of having this this lack of measure the way that maybe other disciplines do um, in their literature. The SAR, um, and if you're not familiar with that, it stands for the Standardized Antimicrobial Administration Ratio, is new and is the first measure that we've tried to have. Um, It's not a perfect measure. Um, There was a talk at ID Week that asked, is the SAR ready for prime time? And the majority of people felt that it wasn't and so it's not perfect but it's the first thing we have Um, it allows us to compare our antimicrobial prescribing to other institutions of similar size and patient population so for example this is a this is a graph that comes out of our um, annual report and so it's showing you antibiotic days of therapy per a thousand patient days so at surface value, if I look at this report over the last two years, I can see that um, 2016 in the blue bars are antibiotic days of therapy and over the last year, the green bars, okay, every month it looks less. So we think this is good, right? But to know what a days of therapy of you know 500 versus 400 is, um, it's not very intuitive of how to interpret this. So what the SAR does is it gives you a ratio of observed to expected antibiotic use, again, compared to other institutions of similar size and patient population. So if your SAR is one, that's supposed to mean that your antibiotic use is, the observed use is maybe (laughs) as expected. So if your SAR is statistically higher than one, it could indicate excessive use of antibiotics. If your SAR is statistically lower than one, it could indicate underuse of antibiotics. So I put our SARs on here for the last two years, and this is facility-wide data. It doesn't tell you whether or not that use is appropriate or not. It just tells you how you're doing compared to others. So it's kind of been described as um, a flashlight where it could indicate something that you should maybe look into further. So this is just an example of of another barrier that we face is we don't have good standardized measures to really look at our antibiotic use. So I wanted to go back to that um, idea of definition of appropriate. And this was a paper in CID from last year from Johns Hopkins. Um, And they did a study where they wanted to compare what was better um, in terms of a stewardship intervention requiring pre-authorization of certain antibiotics, so always requiring a call to ID, versus post-script feedback, or that audit and feedback that we talked about. So I'm not gonna go into the details of their intervention, but what they did was they adjudicated appropriateness in their study, and so they used a definition of this four moments in antibiotic prescribing. And so this was their criteria, was, was antibiotic therapy indicated in the first place based on known information? Was the most appropriate empiric regimen selected? Was it adjusted or or reassessed or stopped at that 72 hour timeout? And was the duration appropriate for the infection? So I thought I, I really like this sort of laid out criteria and I feel like maybe this is something that we could use. You know, anytime that we're considering an intervention, why don't we apply this criteria or definition to that um, to see if it you know feels appropriate or worthy of an intervention and then i wanted to talk about that misalignment of um, incentives that was mentioned as a barrier as well so there was a pro-con debate at id week that asked should stewardship be done in the icu and it was really interesting the person that they brought in to to discuss the con side, that stewardship should not be done in the ICU, was um, a critical care um, pulmonologist. And so he laid out um, his perspective and that really hits at the misalignment. And so he talks about, you know, stewardship, you guys talk in metrics of DOT, drug costs and C. diff rates. Well, we care about mortality, ICU length of stay, duration of ventilation. You know, your rationale for antibiotics is there's no evidence of benefit. You know, de escalate that, Banco. Their perspective is it can't hurt. Um, our action and responsibility from stewardship is you guys just sign the consult or you sign the no. We sign the death certificate. So I think it was, you know, really playing the con side, but, you know, I think that their point's well considered. You know, he mentioned that the adverse effects of ASPs are really yet to be addressed are you going to own the cases when the patients don't do well after de-escalation? But really, you know, his take home was recommending that we just develop strong collaborative teams. So it's not a us versus you or us versus them mentality, but how can we make stewardship more of a um, collaborative endeavor? And then as well as talking about barriers to stewardship comes the different types of prescribers. And so I think this comes from um, Dr. Septimus's talk as well. And so he laid out these different types of prescribers. Those who have a knowledge deficit, those who are insecure, and the outlaw. And some suggestions of how to maybe approach relationships with these different prescribers. So the knowledge deficit is generally the easiest. They're very open to those references that we put in our notes, um, mentoring, sharing education. Those who maybe are more insecure when it comes to their confidence level with prescribing antibiotics might work better with um, more scheduled conversations with them. Maybe it's not a note in the chart, maybe it's a conversation. Um, Hand-holding, if ID is on board, maybe they should just stay on a little bit longer through the end of treatment. Um, Now the outlaw really feels that they have the best interest in their patients. And it's hard to imagine that someone else could have um, the interest of their patient in mind. They're usually the outlaw in more than one area of their practice. They may usually be in that insecure category but not willing to admit it. And so these are the providers that you have to know their literature. You can't come up to them with what was published in CID. You need to go to the surgery literature, the vascular literature, whatever literature that they um, prescribe to and know that inside and out and come at, you know, come at them from that perspective. Acknowledge that you won't win every conversation, but you have to be willing to leave the door open for future ones. Um, the outlaws, these are the ones you, wanna, you want on your committee. Um, using peer pressure, benchmarking, and risk adjusting might also help with them as well. Um, we kinda talked a little bit about peer physician comparison And usually when we talk about that, it's de-identified information. But actually, I think Debbie Goff was the one who mentioned that um, surgeons are actually so competitive that it would work very well if you just put a posting in their locker room with all their names on it and their um, prescribing rates, and that would actually be very influential for them. I don't know if that's what they do at their facility, but um, I thought that was funny, I guess. So, um, strategies. So what have people actually published on doing change behavior with stewardship? So one of the things that we wanna do when it comes to approaching social behavior therapy is investigate the motivations of your frontline prescribers. Take time to reinterpret your resistors. If your interventions are getting rejected, why are they getting rejected? Having, you know, taking the time to hear what they're saying, why they want an antibiotic, um, and trying to come up with a plan together rather than just sort of, you know, telling them what they're doing is wrong. Um, Making sure to engage your senior physicians. Don't do drive-by ASP, ride along. That was a suggestion from ID Week. So don't just, you know, put a note in the chart and then never stop back in and see how the patient did with your recommendation. You know stewardship is really about the trust that your intervention is for the best of their patient and that trust builds with repeated interventions over time um, engaging in those empiric escalations when necessary um, you know makes people feel like you're not just there to take off antibiotics de-escalate discontinue them we don't really care we care about the patient it doesn't matter if you know what antibiotic we're using as long as we feel that it's the right one um, for the patient so that is you know engaging in those escalations when necessary um, helps build that trust um, some of the other suggestions was you know making sure senior leadership attends your stewardship meetings um, having an effective physician champion that can help with those relationships at the senior level within your hospital um, They also suggest don't exclude ID from the stewardship process. So there's a lot of um, references that talk about how as ID physicians, you're the role models for the other physicians in your institution. And that as stewardship, we really should hold you to the same standard that we would hold any physician in the hospital. And so um, I thought those were interesting suggestions, not to sort of silo, um, you know, an ID consult service from the stewardship process. And then finally, they also talk about this idea of quality at the fringe, and don't chase bad apples. Don't spend a disproportionate amount of time on laggards, they say, or just people who are really so set in their ways, they're not gonna change their behavior. So some data from people who actually know what they're doing. So this was um, out of JAMA last year, comes from um, the Dutch, and their problem was they wanted to tackle those resistors and this idea of tension between the governance of stewardship and the autonomy of individual physician prescribing. And so their goal was to use behavioral therapy to design and implement an intervention. So prescribers were going to choose and develop their own intervention. And they were going to do that based on a prior root cause analysis of their own patterns. And the rationale behind that was tailoring to local determinants, so having respect for prescriber's autonomy, um, that people tend to value a product higher if they make it themselves. And they cited something called the IKEA effect. So if a prescriber chooses their own intervention, they're gonna value that higher than me putting an intervention on them. Um, As well as the idea that people follow up on something that they've made an active and public commitment to. So they did 12 months of baseline data collection on prescribing um, habits. They identified four themes um, of the root cause of inappropriate prescribing, whether it was the physician, the culture, the organization, or this idea of guidelines. And overall, they showed a significant (coughs) increase in the appropriateness of, of antibiotics. And so this was just their cascade of the different themes and then the interventions that prescribers came up with. So for example, you know, physicians felt that when it came to antibiotics, they had a lack of knowledge, inexperience, fear. And so some of their interventions were, you know, participatory education sessions, um, maybe stand-up sessions to discuss specific cases, as well as supervisors promising to improve prescribing and support the guidelines. So using, you know, senior, Um, physicians or attendings to set that model so this was um, just a visual of their results so you can see on the left hand side um, the baseline appropriateness of antibiotic prescribing was in the 60 um, 60 to 70 percent range at the time that the intervention was implemented it jumped up to 80 percent and it stayed relatively stable for at least the next 12 months so an interesting data so this is in JAMA a, a few years prior to the previous study um, a nudging guideline concordant prescribing so again this comes from um, AmCare data the problem being that um, in acute respiratory infections half of antibiotics are prescribed are inappropriate for m- multiple reasons all of which i'm sure we discussed um, i thought it was very frank of the authors that they said None of the rationalizations for antibiotic prescribing were valid. Um, And so the idea of a nudge is trying to influence decision-making through subtle cognitive mechanisms. So like those Jedi mind tricks that we talked about at the beginning. So their intervention was a poster commitment letter in the exam room. Um, The clinician had to have a photo on the letter. They had to sign it and it had a commitment to avoid inappropriate antibiotics. So they wanted to take advantage of a physician's (coughs) desire to be consistent with their public commitment. They found, um, after they did this intervention, they had uh, almost a 20% absolute reduction in inappropriate prescribing. Um, Interestingly, they actually looked at whether there were diagnostic coding shifts and they didn't find any. So that was good, no one was trying to game the system. Um, and the rates of appropriate antibiotic prescribing during the period did not change. It was only reducing the inappropriate prescribing. So, this is an example of that letter. I don't know that this is the one specifically from the study. I just I pulled this more recently from the CDC. But you can see that it gives you a spot as a physician to sign your name on it. So, um, you know, this isn't just this isn't really geared towards the patient. And so there have been studies that have, said, that have shown that if you just put a poster in the exam room for like, you know, colon cancer screening, that that alone has no association that it actually increases a patient's, you know, um, rate of getting um, colonoscopies. And so it's not so much that this public commitment is trying to decrease patient demand. It's really about empowering the physician to live up to the commitment that they've said that they would do. Um, And so these ideas of public commitment have been shown to be effective in other areas like voting. If you say you're gonna vote, you're more likely to, if you make a public commitment that you're gonna vote, you're more likely to go do it. Um, Fundraising contributions, and they even mentioned the hotel towel recycling um, initiative that we see. You know, when people make public commitments to things, they're more likely to follow up and do it. Um, Or I thought we could be like Europe and just tell it like it is. And so I thought this was just really frank um, and kind of in your face, but I've seen a lot more of these different posters um, coming out of the Europe um, for antibiotic awareness. And then the last, The last article I wanted to highlight in terms of of successful strategies was um, something I came across that again, really didn't have anything to do with antibiotics, but it was about feedback and how to give effective feedback. And so they kind of grouped um, the types of feedback into different categories and gave examples. And so I thought it was still very translatable to everyday stewardship and making interventions. And so the take home was that you know feedback should be well designed it should be regular um, it should be actionable so having a recommendation that is specific or give something concrete what do you want them to do you're giving them a recommendation um, I think that helps you know those prescribers that are more on the insecure side um, and that the feedback should be directed to the right person and so I think uh, well that kind of echoes um, whether you're directing your feedback at a a junior level member of the team versus a a higher level, depending on how the type of feedback that you're trying to get, being more conscientious about who you're directing it to. So um, my overall conclusions and take home, um, antibiotic prescribing is shaped by social factors more than clinical knowledge. Um, If we ignore the culture of our organization and our hospital, it's gonna decrease uptake of ASP interventions. We wanna think how we can change perceptions you know, of stewardship, of antibiotics, you know, be ambassadors, not police. Build trust, this idea of um, handshake stewardship, Um, introducing yourself, building relationships before just sort of jumping in. Um, It sort of made me think about when I first started here um, and was doing stewardship, even back in 2015, 2016, we didn't have a note title and we didn't have an encounter. And so a lot of the stewardship interventions we did at that time were verbal. We would have to you know, call the team and talk to them and have those conversations. And now it feels like we kind of live behind the safeguard of those chart notes. And so we do a lot more writing than we do um, actually verbal conversations. And so I think we, we probably wanna maybe swing the pendulum back a little bit and try to have more, you know, whether it's a face-to-face interaction or a phone call, because that's really how you build the relationship and you're not just a name in the chart um, giving recommendations on their use. Um, you know, if stewardship programs should really try to develop a plan for conflict, like knowing how you're gonna approach those resistors. Um, but when we can start to you know think about it um, do more qualitative research you know in general ID and stewardship you know hopefully we'll move to more like novel targets and interventions that we can try to implement and then I just wanted to end with um, areas for future research and some of these discussion questions you know if we have time get you know get your opinion um, what you guys think about How to modify culture to change norms? Um, How do we design interventions to target the emotional aspect of antibiotic prescribing? Um, And what are some of the social behavioral dynamics that characterize an optimal way of doing stewardship? So thank you. I'll open the floor up to any comments, questions.